Let's ask God uh, to help us with his word. Please pray with me as I pray for us. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, you give your word to help us trust Jesus and to equip us to live for him. You say that through its encouragement and perseverance uh, we can have hope and that your word will never return to you empty but always achieve your purposes. Uh, we pray now that you would grant in your mercy your word to achieve your good purpose in our lives, that we would grow in our trust in Jesus and that we would be strengthened to live with hope for him in this world. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us to receive it with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, when judgment comes in this life, it brings grief to those experiencing it and grief to those witnessing it. But is there anything that should be said to those who witness judgment? And is there even in the experience of that grief a witness that can also be born to hope? Our prosperous and proud society is experiencing a judgment milder than it might be in the visitation of this virus, the destruction of wealth, the straining of our social fabric, the sickness and death of some, the weariness of many, and we feel the grief of that. And what we see from Ezekiel 24 is that there is something that should always be said to those who witness judgment in the world, and that in grief, those who know the word of the Lord to be true, the word that climaxes in the revelation of the crucified Jesus as Lord, can always witness to hope. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day and utter a parable to the rebellious house. Ezekiel's been speaking to the Jewish exiles in Babylon, probably now for a bit longer than two years, probably more like five, about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, trying to get them to see that its judgment was just and certain, to see that the Lord was not some national deity obligated to save them regardless of how they lived, but the God who he says he is, the creator, the God of the whole world, holy, righteous, in being faithful to his covenant with them, to both its blessings and its curses, its judgments on those who break the covenant. But the people had shown no signs of believing him. Uh, they preferred to believe the false prophets who spoke of Jerusalem's safety and how the Lord would destroy their enemies and bring them back to Jerusalem. In fact, we learn in chapter 12 that the people were saying of Ezekiel, the day grows long and every vision comes to nothing and the vision that he sees is for many days from now and he prophesies of times far off. They were saying, in effect, we don't think what you're saying is true, Ezekiel, and even if it is, it doesn't really concern us because it's not going to happen in our lifetime. But this very day, the day the Lord emphasised in verse 2 that Ezekiel takes special note of, tells the exiles that they were wrong. From the tenth day of the tenth month of the ninth year of the reign this time of King Zedekiah in Jerusalem, 
King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon commenced the siege of Jerusalem that will end in its destruction. Ezekiel must write down the date so that when the news reaches the exiles a month or more later, for it came by foot and horse, no phones or telegrams, Twitter accounts or satellites, when his word was proved to be true, the exiles would know that Ezekiel's vision was God-given, revealing both the cause and the certain outcome the Lord will bring to that siege, a God-given vision revealing what they until then refused to believe, that the Lord willed the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's what this parable, this puzzling saying given by God does. It reveals the cause and the outcome of that siege. Set on the pot, set it on, pour in the water, also put in the pieces of meat. Ezekiel in verses 3 to 5 speaks a cooking song, a quite cheerful song about the preparation for a special meal for meat that was only on the menu on special occasions. And we know from chapter 11 that the people of Jerusalem had talked of Jerusalem as a cooking pot that would protect them from the flame of judgment and that they were the special cuts, the select group who through the experience would become parts of something good, a feast. And so initially Ezekiel's hearers might have been encouraged by this song, but Ezekiel dashes their hope. There will be no festive meal. For Jerusalem, woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. Because of her sin, her bloodshed, Jerusalem is like a pot which has corruption spoken of as corrosion throughout it. Its content, those choice pieces of meat are corrupt. Oh, the pot's to be emptied of its corruption. But corruption sticks to its sides like an adherent scum that spoils anything cooked in it. And this verdict is not baseless, verse 7. For the blood she has shed is in her midst. She put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust. The people in Jerusalem, the powerful especially, treat human life as if it is a common thing, not the gift of God, but something they can destroy as it suits their plans. And they do it openly and provocatively. They do not cover the blood they shed. In the law, even the blood of animals was to be covered by earth when it was shed, for it symbolised the life that belonged to God. Their open shedding of human blood, life God specially protected, showed contempt for the Lord as well as contempt for the lives of others. And the Lord will not allow the offence of what they've done to be hidden. Verse 8, I have set on the bare rock the blood she has shed that it may not be covered. There will be a reckoning for that blood. Ezekiel resumes the cooking pot parable in verse 9 to picture that reckoning. Woe to the bloody city, I also will make the pile great. Heap on the logs, kindle the fire. The Lord will make the fire hot. Try to clean the pot by superheating the pot, setting it empty on the coals, verse 11, to consume the corruption. But the sad reality is the pot and its corruption cannot be separated. Not even the fire is cleansing. To deal with the corruption, the pot itself will have to be destroyed, melted in the fire. And in case the situation was not clear to the hearers of the parable, the Lord makes his meaning explicit in verses 13 to 14. 
on account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed any more until I have satisfied my fury upon you. The Lord has persistently tried to cleanse Jerusalem over hundreds of years. He sent prophets. He gave them kings like Hezekiah and Josiah who opposed idolatry. I would have cleansed you. But they refused. They kept on returning to their idolatry. They kept on with their greed and violence and sexual immorality. And now time has run out. The Lord will satisfy his just anger, his fury upon it. Verse 14, I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. He could not be more emphatic. There is no going back. They will receive what their deeds deserve with all the horror of that. Now remember, Ezekiel is speaking of Jerusalem, but he's speaking to the exiles in Babylon. Now they're no longer in Jerusalem or Judah, though they once lived there and shared in its sinful way of life and wrong thinking about the Lord. The exiles will witness to their great grief the destruction of Jerusalem, yet they will still have time to reckon for themselves with the word of God that God will give to each what each deserves. See, why is the Lord giving the exiles this message? Well, yes, he's telling them this so that when the destruction of Jerusalem happens, they know it's the Lord's doing and why. But he's also telling them so that while they have time, they can change their thinking about God, stop thinking that he's a God who can be taken for granted, who is duty-bound to protect them no matter how they live. And he's telling them so while they have time, they can change their behaviour, start living according to the law God gave them in the covenant, living with the Lord as their king even on the plains of Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar, who is to conquer Jerusalem, claimed to be the true king. That the Lord is still speaking to them so that they can do what they have so far failed to do, repent is his mercy. He's calling them to confess they're in the wrong and God's judgments are right and turn back to the Lord for mercy. In giving this vision with its very firm date, the Lord is telling people who still have time, time to repent, that there will come a time when there is no more time. So now is the time for them to act. And that's something we should also say to those who witness and experience the grief and shock of judgment in this life because that is what Jesus teaches, that there comes a time when there will be no more time, so now is the time to act. That was the point of the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins which Jesus gave in Matthew 25 as he taught his followers about his return and the end of the world. You might remember that parable which was retold in a certain way in the children's talk. The wise, those who took extra oil, were those who used the present, the time they did have, to prepare for a future event they knew was certain but whose exact timing was unknown, the coming of the bridegroom. The foolish were those who did not prepare with the time they had for that certain event of unknown time. And so when the bridegroom came, they were caught out 
and left out. At that time, there was no more time. God's judgments in history should remind us of his final judgment, the day when we will all have to give account for our lives, when God will give to every one of us according to our works. Those judgments should remind us to make sure we are ready for that certain but unknown day in the only way we can be, by repenting and believing in Jesus. Now this is the time to get ready for that time when there will be no more time. But before that day that will come unannounced like a thief in the night, we might die. None of us knows the time of our death and disasters tell us that that day, the day of our death could come upon us unexpectedly. I think that's been one of the things that has shaken people about this COVID virus, that you could be, well, well one week, have a stiffle the next and be dead the week after. The death would come without warning, without waiting for us to prepare ourselves for it. In Luke 13, Jesus spoke of those who died without warning. He spoke of people killed in an earthquake, a natural disaster, and people killed by sudden human violence, Galileans killed by the Romans as they worshipped in the temple. He spoke of these tragedies to warn all who would listen to make sure we are not overtaken by death unprepared. Unless you repent, he said in Luke 13, he says to us, you will all likewise, that is in the same way, perish. Jesus says that unless you repent, even if you die in your own bed, you will die unprepared, not ready to meet your maker and judge. He's urging each of us individually to be ready in the only way possible by repenting, turning away from sin and turning back to the living God by believing the gospel Jesus preached. Now that's something we should heed ourselves, making sure we are each day living lives of repentance and faith in Jesus. And that is something we should be saying to others. We should be saying, look at the uncertainty of our lives. We're not in control. Look at the reality of God's judgments, how easily he humbles us, how easily he can take back the life he has given and stop thinking that God's patience is indefinite. Stop living as if he will not do what he has said. There will come a time, as we see in Ezekiel, when God's patience runs out and his prophesied judgment is executed. While we still have time, we should repent. That is, turn back to God and then find his forgiveness and mercy by believing his son Jesus has died for our sins and risen with authority to forgive all who trust and follow him. It's a question for you, isn't it, now? Have you used the time you have now to get ready for that time Jesus speaks of, that time when there'll be no more time? But Ezekiel's but Ezekiel's audience still did not believe him. They were so wedded to their false belief and false hope that what Ezekiel said was unthinkable, just as some people are wedded to that false belief, that judgment is unthinkable. Ezekiel's audience was still believing, even after the siege started, that God would deliver Jerusalem, that he had to. And so in the Lord's mercy, he provides them with further testimony of the certainty of his judgment on Jerusalem through the grief of his prophet Ezekiel, who will become for them a sign in grief 
of both judgment and hope. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And on the next morning I did as I was commanded. We don't know much about Ezekiel's wife, but he plainly loved her. The delight of his eyes, his consolation in his his own hard life and ministry. Now the Lord says he is to lose her abruptly at a stroke. His will be a real and profound grief. But it's one the Lord goes on to say he's not to express outwardly in any of the culturally accepted and expected ways of mourning his loss. He's not even to express it spontaneously, letting his tears run down, nor is he to accept the support of others as they bring him food. Instead, he's to put on shoes and a turban, that is, to dress with a fine formality. For turbans weren't everyday wear, they were actually festive wear. Now, some of you I know because of COVID restrictions have experienced how hard it is not to be able to mourn well, to not be able to mark properly the passing of the one you love, not be able to access access the comfort of others. You know, you feel what the rest of us sense here, the hardness of this command that will compound Ezekiel's grief. There is so much suffering. So much dying to himself in those brief words. At evening, my wife died. And in the next morning, I did as I was commanded. Yet Ezekiel, who had protested before at being asked to cook on human dung, does not protest the Lord's action in taking his wife's life. He is a believer like Job. He doesn't think his life or her life are their own sovereign possession and that God needs to ask permission or give reasons to take life. Life, he knows, is God's gift. He's sovereign in its giving, the Lord gave. And in its taking, the Lord has taken away. And he does not think his wife was robbed. Like the psalmist, he trusted that she and he lived not one day more or less than the Lord has decided, that our days are given by him, all written in his book before one of them comes to be. And Ezekiel has met the Lord, remember. He's had a glimpse of the likeness of his glory, the glory believers have come to know in Jesus, full of grace and truth. Ezekiel's is a real trust in a sovereign and good God, the Lord and giver of life, the trust you and I should have when we think of our own death or the death of those we love. And that real trust issues in a real, though hard, obedience, an obedience people notice. Will you not tell us what these things mean for us, that you are acting thus? The question shows that they're starting to recognise Ezekiel as a prophet. They know his actions have meaning for them. And the Lord, who has been directing Ezekiel, gives them an answer. 
It is a hard word, a word of coming loss and grief to those who have already known grief. Say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes and the yearning of your soul and your sons and daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips nor eat the bread of men. Your turban shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. The Lord says they, like the prophet, will lose what they most treasure, the focus of their hope, the temple in the same judgment that will carry away their children. Shattered forever will be their false theology that the presence of the Lord in his temple guaranteed their safety and security, that the Lord was a kind of tame national deity satisfied with formal acknowledgement while they did whatever they pleased. And when they learn of that loss, they will mourn as Ezekiel has done. And there's debate about why they'll mourn like Ezekiel. One says it's because they're paralysed with grief. Another, that they're overwhelmed and so the usual rights are all left. Rather, we should actually see their inability to mourn openly as a mark of the completeness of their defeat and their helplessness. You see, they will mourn as a conquered people living amongst and under their conquerors, the Babylonians. They are being watched for their loyalty and so they're expected to rejoice in their King Nebuchadnezzar's triumph over those who have rebelled against him. No shine of public grief. But at the same time, the Lord declaring beforehand that he is the one who profanes his sanctuary transforms what is a sign of Nebuchadnezzar's rule and triumph into a sign that it's the Lord who reigns, the Lord whose will is done in these unthinkable events. Where they might have thought the destruction of his sanctuary was a sign of the Lord's defeat and lost all hope. In fulfilling Ezekiel's prophecy by mourning on that day as Ezekiel has already mourned, they can recognise that it is the Lord who rules. It's his will is done. And Nebuchadnezzar, merely a servant, carrying out his will. If they will remember the Lord's word, even in their grief, even as they lament their sin, they know where they can find hope, the Lord whose word is true. And so Ezekiel will be to you a sign, according to all that he has done you shall do. When this comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. Ezekiel himself will be a sign to them of both grief and the truth of God. His own mourning points to the hard mourning to come, but beyond that, to the truth of the word of the word God speaks through him. And so they will know that the Lord who speaks is the God he says he is, the God who keeps covenant, righteous in bringing upon a rebellious people the judgments he said he would when they broke the covenant. The God who rules, whose word is true because he is the only God almighty to do what he has said in all the world. And yes, the God who in faithfulness to his covenant is the God to whom they can turn in repentance to find life. And the Lord tells Ezekiel his ministry will not end with the fulfilment of his prophecies in the destruction of Jerusalem. As for you, son of man, surely on that day when I take from their stronghold 
Take from them their stronghold, their joy and glory, the delight of their eyes and their soul's desire and also their sons and daughters. On that day a fugitive will come to you to report the news. On that day your mouth will be opened to the fugitive and you shall speak and be no longer mute. So you will be assigned to them and they will know that I am the Lord. When that great turning point is reached, when the Lord has spent his fury on Jerusalem, Ezekiel's mouth, closed from a week after the Lord first appeared to him, will be opened and he will speak and again become a sign to the people of Israel. But this time, what will he be a sign of? Well, a a sign again pointing to the truth of God, What the Lord has said 18 months beforehand, he will have now performed, Ezekiel speaks. So in speaking on that day, Ezekiel is a sign of the trustworthiness of the word of the Lord. And he is also a sign that the Lord has further words to say through his prophets, that judgment is not the last word. In being a sign of the truthfulness of God's word, Ezekiel, as he speaks that further word, in turn will become a sign of hope for a devastated people. A people saying, as we see in Ezekiel 33, surely our transgressions and sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How can we live? In opening his mouth to declare the visions the Lord will give him of gathering and renewing the life of his people of peace in the Lord's presence. Ezekiel, in his very speaking, will be a sign to a discouraged and despairing people of the faithfulness of God to his word, of a sure hope in the Lord. In Ezekiel 24, we see the Lord gives the exiles in Ezekiel's grief a hard, true word, so that when that hard word was fulfilled in their grief, they will in turn receive a good, trustworthy word, a word of new life and hope. In his obedience in grief, Ezekiel became a sign of the trustworthiness of God, the God who speaks a hard and true word of judgment but who will not let that be his last word to a sinful people. And the Lord who made Ezekiel a sign in his grievous grievous obedience of the Lord's rule and the trustworthiness of his word, has also made Ezekiel a sign for us, a sign pointing to another servant of the Lord who in his grievous obedience speaks a trustworthy word of judgment and hope. You see, in the grief and sorrow he endured in going to the cross, the Lord Jesus, that man of sorrows, speak to us a hard word of judgment, a good word of hope, which are sure and certain words. The Lord speaks to us a hard word. You see, the cross tells us that sin, our sin, is serious and God will judge it, give it what it deserves, death. In fact, the cross makes judgment on a world that so hates its maker that it seeks to kill him certain. It guarantees that there will come that time for rebels when there is no more time. And on the cross, in the midst of the grief of Jesus enduring in our place the judgment of death, of draining the cup of God's wrath, the Lord Jesus also speaks a good word to us. It's the gospel word that he is there dying for our sins. The gospel that tells all who repent 
and believe that gospel word that he died for our sins and rose again that tells us we will be forgiven and need not fear the day of judgment. And on the cross and in his rising, the Lord Jesus becomes a sign to us of the reign, the rule of God, and of the truthfulness and trustworthiness of the word of God, of the word he speaks to us. You see, the Lord Jesus said he would die and rise again, and he did. Oh, the Lord said in Psalm 16 that he would not let his Holy One see decay, and the Lord raised Jesus from the dead. And in his raising in fulfilment of that word, he showed that what looked like the triumph of the enemies of God and his people is actually the triumph of God and his King Jesus. In the grief of the cross, the man of sorrow speaks to us a hard word, a good word, words that are sure words. He speaks a word that tells us that either the judgment for our sin is borne by Jesus in our place or we will bear it ourselves. And he calls us to repent and trust in the living Lord Jesus to forgive us and give us eternal life. And if we listen to that word, if we believe that word, we will not only know comfort in our own grief, the grief of death and suffering we experience, the the comfort uh, we know as we know the hope of eternal life, the one who has conquered death gives us the, the comfort we know as we know the love of a God who would freely give his son to give us life while we were still his enemies. We not only know that comfort for ourselves, but we also become those, as we believe that word, who are signs of hope, who can bear witness to a hope that can be known even in grief. The New Testament calls believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, to bear this witness to hope, both in the grief of death and in the grief of suffering. Speaking to the Thessalonian believers, Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do have, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Death is the judgment on our race's sin. And in the grief of the death of this body, as we experience in part that judgment, believers are to mourn differently. We mourn as those who have a sure hope. And as we do, we bear witness to the truthfulness and power of the living God, the God who raised the Lord Jesus, the God who says he will raise all those who trust Jesus, who are in Jesus by faith. And in 1 Peter, the Lord tells us that in the grief of suffering, whether that's suffering in the various trials Peter spoke of in chapter 1, or the suffering of persecution, suffering for doing good, or suffering in the judgment that Peter says in chapter 4 begins with the household of God, we are called to have a visible, known hope, a hope that prompts questions. And in suffering, believers can then speak to others of how this hope has been given to us in our grief because the living God has suffered the loss of what was most precious to him. He knows that grief. Giving his beloved son up to death for our sin. 
and then raising him from death to speak a word beyond judgment from grief, the grief of the cross, giving us a good and true word that says evil will not triumph and death will not be the end for all who repent and believe the gospel. When judgment comes, it brings grief to those who experience it and to many witnessing it. But is there anything that should be said to those witnessing judgment as our neighbours are today? Yes, the word we must speak is that now is the time to get ready for the time when there is no more time. The time when God says of his judgment to a world that perseveres in its sin, that refuses to be cleansed of its rebellion, I am the Lord, I have spoken, it shall come to pass, I will do it according to your ways and deeds. You will be judged. We should tell people that now is the time to get ready for that day by turning from sin and crying out to the living Lord Jesus for mercy and we should tell them clearly and urgently. And is there even in the experience of that grief a witness that can be born to hope? Yes, Believers in Jesus must bear witness to the hope he's given us through his grievous and triumphant suffering. And that's the hope of salvation, of peace with God, the hope of justice, the hope of resurrection life, the hope of the sure promise of the almighty Lord whose word never fails, whose truth is experienced now by believers in forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit. Because until the final day, that time when there is no more time, this is the hope all who repent and believe can come and share. Hope that says the word God is still speaking to sinners is not die. No, the word he's speaking is, I have no delight in the death of sinners, so turn while there is still time. Turn and live. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we are shocked by the grief and suffering uh, you called Ezekiel to experience in his service of you. And we're even more shocked by the experience of grief and suffering you called your beloved son Jesus to experience in doing your will. But we thank you that he endured that grief and that in his grief he speaks to us a word that can give us life, that his suffering was for us, that he was enduring on the cross what our sins deserve so that we need never face it. We thank you that through his death and resurrection you have given us a hope we can know even in our grief and a hope we can share with others that he has triumphed, that his life has beaten death, his love has beaten hate and that he can give life and hope to all who trust him. Our Father, we pray that we would be faithful to him faithful in living with hope and speaking of that hope while we can. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.